You're tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Federal probes involving the FBI and other federal partners have helped to ferret out public corruption across the islands. That's in addition to dealing with the threats of cybercrime and espionage. Just last week, the Justice Department announced that federal investigators took down a malware operation that was operating globally. We get a chance to talk to Stephen Merrill, special agent in charge of the Pacific region Friday afternoon, not just about those international threats, but about the public corruption playing out across the islands. We need the eyes and ears of the public to notify us. We can't be everywhere all the time. So uh, what I hope is by publicizing the fact that we have had successful cases and prosecutions with the U.S. Attorney's Office, that people will say, enough's enough. I know uh, information about this. I have information. I'd like to tell you about it so that uh, we can just put a stop to this. But in the meantime, uh, the FBI will continue to prosecute these cases with the U.S. Attorney's Office, and hopefully that will change the behavior of some of our public officials. And I certainly want them to know on behalf of the FBI that we're going to continue aggressively investigating corruption for the sake of the people of the state. We've also seen uh, some activity uh, related to COVID funds. So much money went out and there were people that amazingly were so bold in making assertions and then got big fat checks in the mail. Catherine, this is something that has bothered me uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. Actually, in my last job before I came here to Honolulu, I was in Washington, D.C., and I was in many ways in charge of the FBI's response for COVID fraud. And it's just staggering to know the numbers. And so, you know, it really was a, a, a rude awakening for me as law enforcement officers to know that literally uh, $3 trillion of the taxpayers' money, again, went out. And it was done for all the right reasons, to help people who needed support, needed financial help during that time. However, one of the benefits of the program was that the money was able to go out quickly to help people right away, business owners, people, individuals. However, uh, the downside to that and I say this as a law enforcement officer, was that the money went out so quickly, there were little checks and balances that allowed anyone to track the money. And more or less, it gave a lot of the criminal element an opportunity that didn't necessarily exist before because of that quickness. Now, the FBI pivoted and responded, and I say that because I saw it firsthand, and we did that with our partners, uh, mostly the inspectors general for the government programs that offered these funds, whether it be Small Business Administration, or the Department of Labor. So we're still to this day and will continue for a number of years probably working with our partners here in the FBI to track down that money, figure out who actually legitimately deserved that money and received it versus who didn't deserve it and defrauded the system and our taxpayers. You know, and I think even the U.S. Attorney Claire Connors, I think she was on our show and she was saying that, yep, she got uh, a scam call or, or a letter. I mean, it was just astounding, I guess, the magnitude of what was going on at the time. I agree. And uh, U.S. Attorney Connors and I agree on a lot of things. And one of them is that we should aggressively pursue these cases. And we're doing that. Again, you know, another instance where we could always use the public's help. If you notice something that smelled bad during the pandemic in terms of someone acquiring government funds who maybe shouldn't have, please let us know. If they're innocent, uh, we'll find them and we'll move on to the next case. But if they're guilty of something, we're going to pursue that and try to get that money back to the people who deserve it and, and really need it, the people who are actually eligible for those funds. And then on the public corruption cases, uh, I know, you know, there's just been a number of indictments from union bosses to prosecutors. We've got cases that are active now, and I know you can't really say much about, about that, but I guess we just haven't seen those numbers of folks who are regarded as, you know, upstanding citizens in the community, uh, and yet to see the, the uh the prosecutions. I think it's just really kind of shocking to maybe the community. I think in every community uh, it is shocking because the first thing we do when we become government officials or government employees, we take a vow to protect the Constitution of, and here in Hawaii, they take a, a vow to protect the Constitution of the state. And we take that very seriously. And the majority of people that work in government are law-abiding and do in government for all the right reasons to help the public. So again, that's another reason why we take it very seriously. And hopefully the public officials that are thinking about getting to corrupt acts will think twice because we're going to aggressively prosecute and, and secure indictments whenever necessary to make sure that our 
our government is fair and it's for the people and it's a government that the taxpayers of Hawaii expect and deserve. For a while there, uh, at the start, I think, of the tensions with um, uh, Ukraine, you know, there was an alert out for businesses and organizations in general just to be on alert because of the concern of of cybercrime. I mean, I don't know uh, what you can say about that if you've seen a, a rise in that in the last year. I think the last time we spoke, Catherine, we, we discussed that, and it's something that's always on our radar. Certainly the war in Ukraine we thought would be an impetus for cyber activity. There has been, I don't know, I can't necessarily say it's because of that war, but on all sides of the world we're getting hit as you know citizens and companies both by cyber attacks. In fact, I'm very proud of the FBI for aggressively investigating these cases worldwide. And in fact, yesterday we had a very big takedown of a malware collective, if you will, where we indicted a number of people for doing just that, cyber attacks, locking people's computers, companies' computers to hopefully collect ransom. And it's just something that is a part of our life. And again, another thing we take very seriously, and both on the criminal side, where money is being stolen from them effectively, and also on the national security side, making sure we at the FBI and our partners making sure that our most trusted assets are being protected from cyber attacks, whether they be from individuals or nation state actors. And the FBI and our partners led the charge, but really wanted to congratulate the Department of Justice for taking on such a big case. And I encourage the public to take a look at the charging documents and the press conference that the FBI and the Department of Justice and our partners put forth yesterday to talk about details about the case. And is there anything else uh, that we should be concerned about? I mean, I know there was a, uh, uh, an alert that was put out, uh, concerns about threats to our utility companies. I don't know, you know what you can say about that. Yeah, I don't want to talk about cases outside of our division because I I certainly don't have the expertise and know the details. But I can speak broadly on behalf of the FBI that we have seen and working with our local and state partners, of course, that there have been attacks on some power stations around the country. And, you know, we take it very seriously. And and I can't thank our, our local partners anymore because they're the ones who are usually the first responders and collect the evidence that's used in prosecutions. And if that were to happen here in our state or in Guam and Saipan and American Samoa, we would work with our partners to try to make sure we identified the people responsible, figure out what the damage was, and, you know, try to get things back online, working with our partners in the private sector. But luckily, you know, we haven't had any activity here as such, but we in the FBI around the country are aware that that is a possibility and we're standing ready to respond. And then is there anything you can say just about you know, espionage? I mean, I know we, you know we heard that there was a Russian ship you know, uh, in Hawaiian waters. There's always concern about what's happening with uh, China. Um, you know, I know a few years ago they uh, were concerned about what was happening uh, with China and some of the institutions of higher learning here in Hawaii, in in some of those places were shut down. What do you want to say about that? I'll just say on the national security side, we are working hard with our partners here in the Department of Defense and in the private sector and other government agencies to protect our most sensitive secrets. That is our material. It's U.S. property. And our adversaries would love to get their hands on some of that research and information. So we're trying to protect it. And when we find out that there's a possibility that they may have exploited any weaknesses, we're going to patch that weakness and and go after the people who we believe are trying to expose our vulnerabilities and, and steal our secrets. That was FBI agent in charge Stephen Merrill, who we talked to Friday afternoon about the agency's priorities. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Do you remember the Earth-orbiting satellite Discover 13 designed to test newly developed advanced spacecraft engineering techniques? Its main purpose 
was to execute a successful atmospheric reentry and recovery of its instrument package from the ocean. On August 11, 1960, Discover 13 successfully reentered the Earth's atmosphere and parachuted into the Pacific. The recovery capsule was retrieved and transported to Pearl Harbor. Less than a week later, the contents of the satellite recovery capsule was presented to a significant figure in our nation's history. For today's quiz, we want to know what was in the recovery capsule and who was it given to. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable HBR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing affordable housing for families, such as the Institute for Human Services. NareetHawaii.com. Civil Beach Reality Check has an update to a controversy swirling around one of the governor, Governor Josh Green's appointees. Reporter Marcel Henri joins us today. Hi, Marcel. Hey, Catherine. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. So your story today is about the uh, nominee for the Department of Land and Natural Resources, Don Chang. That's right. And as you mentioned, uh, it's basically one of several. Chang's nomination is one of several controversial nominations coming up in this uh, in the coming months by uh, our new governor, Josh Green. Now, Chang would be the first native Hawaiian woman to chair the Board of Land and Natural Resources and head the Department of Land and Natural Resources. Her top deputies as well would be native Hawaiian as well. So it would be some historic leadership at this large, sprawling, very important, very consequential state department that oversees, you know, Hawaii's forest, its streams, its offshore waters, uh, coral, everything, you know, it's such a consequential department. However, there's a petition that's been circulating online and it still has over 800 signatures as of Friday was the last time that I checked. And uh, this is coming from a lot of the conservation community, local uh, environmental groups, as well as some Native Hawaiians who are concerned about Chang. And my reporting last week basically found that the Native Hawaiian community is very mixed uh, in its assessment of her nomination by Green. Yeah, and the problem was that she has uh, worked as a consultant uh, to a number of uh, developers, a lot of uh, entities that come before the land board. Uh, and including issues around uh, EV, um, human remains. That's right. There's, there's a there's a whole complex uh, history uh, with with Chang's uh, past career. She was a deputy attorney general, where she largely oversaw Hawaii's unique laws pertaining to ancestral burials and cultural practices. She went on to be a consultant for some of the prominent developers. You're talking about like Howard Hughes, Outrigger, um, and and the like, you know, these these big projects you're seeing on the on the South Shore General Growth Properties, which, you know, had uh, the All in Moana Center for a long time. And, you know, I had a chance to, to speak with Chang over uh, on, on Thursday, and she mentioned I, I was not afraid to take on these projects. It wasn't that I was, you know, endorsing these projects per se, uh, but I was a cultural consultant to, to help them navigate and give them a chance to talk to the community and have that, that sort of a, of a process. And that's what she is stressing is that she's saying I'm a, a process person. I am comfortable making these very difficult decisions as long as you've had a lengthy, robust community engagement process. Now, what the opponents are saying is, yeah, that's that's great that, you know, you had these these uh, community engagements and the like. But what was clear and if you look actually look on her website in the about us page on the, the website that has been taken down. I mean, there is language that says we specialize in getting community support, building community support for these big economic projects. So 
some of the concern is that you know she was she was working to get these projects done at the end of the day. Yeah, and uh, you know uh, Eddie Ayal, who uh, was the one who was circulating the petition uh, on his uh, behalf of his work with uh, with protecting Evie. Uh, I know he had planned to meet with the governor's people uh, late last week, but I don't know what transpired because he he obviously wants the governor with, to withdraw her name from consideration. That's right. We'll have to see if this is any sort of a flashback to you know another nominee from 2015 to hold this post, uh, Carlton Ching, who also had very strong connections to lobbyists, or I'm sorry, to, to developers. He himself was a lobbyist. Uh, but yeah, it's it's uh, just a. It's something that that is swirling right now. There's a lot of conversations being had, and uh, I'd, I'd say just there, there's a lot of detail in the story. So anybody who's who's more interested can check it out on Civil Beat. All right, and stay tuned for the next development. Yeah. But thanks so much, Marcel. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Marcel Henri with today's reality check. You can read that story at civilbeat.org. to believe that it's been almost two years since Hanama Bay was reopened to visitors following a rare shutdown due to the pandemic. During that time, we went out with scientists who were taking samples to study water quality and fish behavior. So you really are getting then an interesting baseline during this time. It's a wonderful baseline for fishes, for sedimentation, for corals and other invertebrates. It's really nice to be able to quantify what's happening in the absence of tourists. That was Kutle Rogers. We were out with her at Hanama Bay. She and her team of researchers have been involved in a couple of carrying capacity studies for Hanama. They are winding up a five-year contract with the city. Rogers talked with us about the water clarity in the fish population, as well as the outlook for rising sea levels. You know, it was an unprecedented closure that happened for nine months. So we had data before the closure, during the closure, and after the closure. So it was really nice to be able to see how things were recovering or what happened during the closure. So during the closure, there was quite an increase in a variety of things. We did before, during, and after was we looked at diver-operated stereo videoing as well as fish density surveys. And we wanted to know, are the fish letting you come closer, minimum approach distance, and flight initiation distance? Are they leaving if they see tourists over there? So what we found was the fish all were able to be approached more closely during the closure. And then once it opened, they would flee sooner. But one of the exceptions was Pualu, the ring-tailed surgeon fish. They would let observers go very close to them before, during, and after. It didn't make a difference to them, but they're one of the larger surgeon fish. So it just appeared that they aren't that much of a threat from humans because they're larger and there's no fishing pressure. So they don't but care. <laughs> fish, yeah, they don't seem to care. But fish like Uhu and Hinalea, the wrasses, the parrotfish, they didn't want to be approached as closely when the visitors returned. And then we also wanted to look at a variety of other things with fish, too, to see if their biomass and their abundance had changed. And all sectors of the bay, both of those increased with fish. But then you got to think, are they moving around from other areas or are these new fish that are coming in? And they were pretty large fish, so it looked like they were coming from offshore or moving around within the bay. And most of them moved to the keyhole area because that's where the visitors were. So during the closure, they moved into the keyhole area. And then after people came back, then you didn't see as many of the butterfly fishes, surgeon fishes, wrasses, and, of course, the nemue. We also wanted to look at what they were foraging. Are they eating more when there are less people? And we found this to be true, that they spend less time foraging when there's more people. But we were really lucky because when they reopened the bay, 
they opened at 25% capacity of what it had been in 2019 numbers. And then they gradually increased to 50% capacity. And so we were able to see what the differences were. And as the people increased, these things also decreased. So there were less fish. And then turtles and monk seals, that was much harder to quantify because there aren't a lot of them that come in every day. But we did see a lot more monk seals. But it wasn't statistically significant at that time because there were lower numbers. But because there were no people on the beach, there were lots more monk seals. And then we looked at water clarity. So that was the one that had the biggest difference. We put sediment traps in to see how much sediment is deposited on the bottom. And then we took water clarity measurements, and the bay was 56% clearer during the COVID-19 closures than before the closures when it was open to the public in 2019. So that was quite a big difference. And people were seeing that all over the state. It wasn't just at Hanama Bay. And then once they reopened, it was still 10% clearer than it had been before. So within all of the sectors, Keyhole, Backdoor, Channel, which is Brew, the water clarity was significantly greater during the closure than compared to when they reopened. And then after the reopening of the bay, water clarity decreased again by nearly 30%. Well, I happened to go down there as they were letting people in when the numbers were still fairly low. And thank heavens, they have reduced the crowds. And it was, you know, kind of a trial and error. You know, the city had to work out some bugs, but it definitely was a much better experience all around because there were just fewer people. Right. It's really nice because the changes that they made are there are shorter hours. The price increased to $25, not for locals but for visitors from other places. And they close two days now instead of one day a week, both Monday and Tuesday they're closed. This is interesting because the other Marine Life Conservation District is the Pupukea Waimea, and their biggest days there are Monday and Tuesday because Hanama Bay is closed. And then Hanama Bay also has that new reservation system And so that makes it more difficult, and you have to get in at a certain time, and there's only limited availability, so less people are able to come. But they also have walk-ins. But the nice thing is locals can come in between 7 and 9 without having to watch the video. Well, you don't have to pay at any of the time, and they can come down to the bay earlier. So it's very nice, and we're seeing more locals Because we did a social caring capacity study, and we did that shortly after it had opened. So there still weren't a lot of people, but what we found was there were 13% locals. And the last study that was done in 2001 only had 3% locals that were using Hanama Bay. So this is achieving what management wanted to do, which was encourage the locals. And that is very nice. But we saw much less Japanese visitors. But that was because, you know, at that time when we did this, when they reopened the bay, we found that Japan had restrictions in place when they returned. So very few Japanese visitors were coming at that time. So that was like one of the biggest differences. But the first-time visitors, which is half of the visitors, are first-time visitors to Hanama Bay. That was about the same as 20 years ago, the survey that was done there. And about 10% of the visitors had no snorkeling experience. And that was about the same as 20 years ago as well. We also asked them about educational opportunities and They all felt that the mandatory educational video that they instituted in 2002 was the most effective educational tool. And this is in contrast to, like, the signage, displays, information booths. So in other studies, it shows that by increasing the visitor educational opportunities, in contrast to just reducing the numbers, it's more effective in addressing the management concerns. So we recommend that they incorporate 
biological, physical, and social aspects when they're looking at sustainability approaches. Besides the social caring capacity, we're also doing a physical caring capacity right now. And I just want to tell you one of the most disturbing things that we've found so far is the predictions on sea level rise. So the physical carrying capacity includes like the number of people that can safely be on the beach or in concessions, restrooms, things like that, other areas in the bay. Sea level predictions, they have predictive models at NOAA's PACIS, the Pacific Island Ocean Observing System, and the UHC Level Rise Laboratory that Chip Fletcher heads, and they made predictions for sea level rise from half a foot, one foot, two feet, three feet. And we combined these models with satellite imagery of Hanama Bay to see how much usable beach area during these times. And we look first at the half foot. And just then the half foot model, if sea level rises half a foot, now this is predicted to occur in 2030. That's just seven years from now. It showed an 88% decrease in the usable beach area. Interesting. Only the, yeah, only parts of the sand and the grassy area remained. And from the one to three foot level, only the grassy area remains and there's no beach at all. Well, the city's going to have to kind of rethink how they get people down there and how that all works. Right, if they're going to add sand to the grass area or Mm -hmm. what their plans are, but there's going to have to be major restructuring. Of course, this isn't just for Hanama Bay. There's major issues for any island areas, right? You talked about the satellite imagery. You know, there was a recent study, I think it was out of Princeton, that looked at social media postings and the degradation of the reefs, and it was through... I think Greg Asner's work, right, the satellite imagery data that he and his wife have been collecting. So what are your thoughts about that and and Hanama Bay? Well, I think it's really important to have all of the information that we possibly can. We have been up to this time in marine research getting information, trying to understand about the reefs from all aspects, all the way up to the satellite imagery. But... Now is a time that we have to make a change and look at solutions because we are running out of time. You know, the ocean is what drives our weather and our climate. It stabilizes the temperature, the oxygen that we're breathing. You know, it absorbs most of the CO2. But there's a lot of things now like carbon sequestration and other solutions that are coming forward that need a chance to be to look at these things and see if they really can be viable solutions on a larger scale. So these things are going to play a bigger and better pivotal role in the future of our reefs. And we have to also do our part, of course, along with adopting and embracing some of these newer technologies that are happening. That was researcher Kutley Rogers of the University of Hawaii's Institute for Marine Biology talking about the health of Hanama Bay. She says this is the fifth year of a carrying capacity study uh, looking at the ecology and the social aspects of the popular visitor attraction. Support for HPR comes from An Evening with David Sedaris. The humorist, comedian, and author is coming to the Blaisdell Concert Hall in Honolulu, Saturday, February 18th. Tickets at davidsedarishawaii.com. Next time on The World, a Russian hacker upgraded his business and began to franchise the operation. He rented sophisticated software to hackers around the globe. He took what used to require weeks of being on a network and manually entering commands and writing scripts and stuff. And he automated it so a lot of people could commit a ransomware attack. Going undercover with a Russian ransomware gang on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. 
Support for HPR comes from Hakuone in Kaka'ako Makai, where OHA plans to create a Hawaiian space in an urban setting, committed to building a neighborhood where all are welcome and where Hawaiian culture thrives. Hakuone.com. Our homeless crisis got a touch of drama during the governor's State of the State address as Josh Green pulled out a pen and signed an emergency proclamation. Reporter Casey Harlow joins us today to talk about what makes this executive order different. Hi, Casey. Good morning. Uh, So um, a lot of people applauded uh, that move uh, that Governor Josh Green did uh, during his State of the State address, which is about a week ago um, Mm -hmm. this time. And... Yeah, uh, he amended it as well uh, late last week uh, to provide a little bit more clarity to it. Uh, I spoke with James Kushiba, who's the governor's coordinator on homelessness. Uh, he His initial reaction when Governor Green pulled out that pen, uh, he was very surprised when he took that action, but very uh, pleased as well. The point of the proclamation is that time is of the essence for helping bring all of our people home. And that, you know, the proclamation is the difference between being able to do that in a matter of months versus a matter of years, um, because the, the typical um, development process and approval process does take years. So they want to and, cut through that red tape. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of lawmakers, again, applauded it. Stakeholders and uh, providers as well applauded it. But there was uh, also some questions because, you know, the language was very broad. There was nothing really specific about it. Uh, Others also express their concern because, you know, when you have something very broad and not a lot of details, you kind of assume that, you know, maybe it gives developers or, you know, uh, for-profit agencies to maybe come in and uh, take uh, action, uh, whatever that may look like. But uh, Koshiba says the changes that happened last week uh, definitely um, address those concerns. Some of the concerns that have been expressed about the proclamation being a free pass on environmental um, or cultural degradation or a windfall for developers, I think it's rooted in a misunderstanding of what the proclamation is and is not. So first, I think one misunderstanding is people thought that these exemptions are new. And in fact, this proclamation was modeled on uh, homeless emergency proclamations that stood continuously between 2015 and 2020 that had the same exemptions written into them. So I think what ended up happening was uh, it's basically the same proclamation that was signed uh, during the State of the State address that uh, former Governor David Ige signed or had standing between 2015 and 2020, but because he did it in such a uh, a public way, right? There was a lot of eyes on it. Mm-hmm. And it, needless, I mean, to say, the past proclamations helped Kauhale projects such as Puuhonua o Waianae and Kahoiki Village really get off the ground. Uh, but Kashiba says last week's amendments really make the proclamation much more different than the Ige's administration. One is this proclamation, old proclamations said projects could be covered for up to three years. Whereas this proclamation says that, you know, projects can finish what they start. If they start with a proclamation, they can finish with the same exemptions. And we added that because if, for example, a homeless services provider, let's say, enters into a long-term lease with a county to operate a Kalhale or the other facility, and they use expedited procurement to do that, which is allowed under the proclamation, once the proc expires, then their lease may be called into question, this question of, well, we have to terminate the lease and then put it out to bid again. And that kind of unpredictability is would be disastrous, both for the organization and for the people being served. And another thing is also adding uh, eligibility requirements to who can actually uh, take advantage of this emergency proclamation. Under past proclamations, there were no rules or processes gui- guiding how projects would qualify or rules to address environmental or cultural concerns. And we wanted to establish a process to go along with this proclamation to make sure that those concerns were addressed and and to make it clear how projects would be sort of qualified under the PROC and could be completed under the PROC. And so um, some of the concerns that we heard right out the gate were about environment and culture 
And so the governor added language to the proclamation to make it clear that there will be rules that accompany this proclamation and related to environment and culture in particular. Yeah, so the devil's really in the details, right? Exactly. And this uh, proclamation is good until March. We'll see if this gets extended or even uh, what comes up. Kashiba says that there are several projects or several proposals in the pipeline that would greatly benefit from this proclamation, keeping in mind those environmental and cultural considerations as well. Right. And and I, I know there's lots of talk about the Ohana zones and, you know, other types of those tiny homes that can be rolled out across the state. Exactly. And I actually spoke with Kashiba about the Ohana zones. There are efforts to look into some of the successes and maybe uh, the not necessarily failures, but uh, just looking at what actually works. And in Governor Green's budget proposal, there is extended funding for the Ohana zones project as well. All right. Something else to watch. But thank you so much, Casey. Thank you. Have a great rest of your morning. All righty, you too. That was Casey Harlow talking about Governor Josh Green's executive order to deal with our homeless crisis. Uh, Check out his stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence to talk about reducing the negative effects that Starlink satellites have had on ground-based astronomy. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny planet, also things we can try and spot in our island skies. And we're fortunate to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips, and he's on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be back. So this week's stargazers, Mars can be found in the southern skies after sunset. The moon this week is approaching its full phase, which means stargazing for those faint objects in the heavens will be very challenging indeed. Now, you've got news, apparently, positive news on something that has been making some stargazing more challenging, and that's the uh, Starlink issue. Yes, there's finally some good news in the battle against SpaceX and its mega constellation of satellites known as Starlink. SpaceX engineers will now be redesigning the next generation of Starlink satellites to reduce their visibility and ultimately the catastrophic effect they have been having on ground-based astronomy. While it won't make the satellites invisible to ground-based observatories, it will help reduce the amount of science that is lost to this interference. Wow, it sounds like it could be really good news. What are the changes, Chris? Well, there are a number of significant design aspects that are changing. These include redesigning the solar panel arrays so that they don't reflect light during certain phases of the satellite's orbit. They're also looking at using a special coating and a new type of paint that will reduce the overall satellite's visibility. The big catch is, however, that the ones that are up there, nothing can be done about those, or what do we do about those? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Unfortunately, you know, what's up there is going to stay up there, at least for the time being. Although these satellites do have a relatively short lifespan, so they will eventually burn up in the Earth's atmosphere once they've reached the end of their useful life. And they'll be replaced by these new ones. And they're not serviceable either, right? So they're basically, for any reason, purpose of of any kind, they're just a basic uh, disposable item. When they're done, they're done. Essentially, they are disposable. And that's another aspect of these satellites that is pretty negative. And taking a broader look at the context of this issue, talk about the amount of science that's been affected by the Starlink thing. Well, if we use the ZTF or Zwicky Transit Facility as just one example, over 20% of all images taken with this ground-based camera have been affected. That's almost a quarter of the science down the drain. However, these new design aspects coming into play soon, we can hopefully reduce that to around 10, maybe 15%. It's a small but significant win for ground-based astronomy. Do you know what the average life of one of their satellites is, anyway? So these satellites normally last around five years. We'll start looking for some new stuff. We know who will be keeping us up to speed on it. That's you, Christopher Phillips, and thank you so much. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com. 
And now it's time for your backyard quiz answer. And we were looking at the stars. One example of our early space uh, of early space ingenuity was the 1960 Earth orbiting satellite Discover 13. According to NASA, the satellite was used to test techniques and technology for both the launch and the recovery of orbiting objects. The satellite carried a wide array of instruments and tools, and in the recovery capsule, an American flag. On August 11, 1960, the capsule successfully re-entered Earth's atmosphere and parachuted into the ocean near Hawaii, where it was brought to Pearl Harbor for temporary storage. Days later, the American flag in the satellite's recovery capsule was removed and presented to President Dwight D. Eisenhower. And that was the answer we were looking for, but we stumped you on that one. No winners today. But that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one that you'd like to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Tyree Nichols just seemed like someone who was uh, like a, a typical 29-year-old who was finding his way and building a life for himself. And so... Uh, I think for his family, that's what has made this all the more staggering. They didn't see him as someone who would have any kind of encounter with the police. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for HPR comes from BAMP Project, presenting Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons, performing songs such as Oh, What a Night, March 17th at the Mac and March 18th at the Waikiki Shell. Tickets at BAMPproject.com and at MauiArts.org. The 2023 Grammy Awards will be given out this coming Saturday in Los Angeles. Among those nominated this year is producer Jason Baum. Baum grew up on Maui and graduated from Maui High School. He's since worked on music videos and other productions with several recognizable names, including Beyonce and Kendrick Lamar. He won a Grammy in 2018 for Lamar's video for the song Humble. This year, he's nominated again for collaborating with Lamar on the video for The Heart Part 5. The Conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Baum recently to talk about how he stays top of mind for many music A-listers. You won a Grammy in 2018 for your work on Kendrick Lamar's video for Humble. You're nominated this year. Congratulations for a thank you for a Grammy for your work on Kendrick Lamar's video for The Heart Part Five. I imagine music videos are highly collaborative projects. When you start pre-production on a music video, what do you think it is that you bring to the process that is uniquely you? I think a lot of what people are looking for when they bring me on to a project is my access or knowledge to other talented individuals. I spent a lot of time tracking other important crew members from like a director of photography or an editor or a colorist. I'm always keeping tabs on who's doing interesting work because, you know, potentially the director's first choice might not be available or they might be looking to work with someone new. So what I typically bring to the project is a network or at least a mind or a resource of people to bring onto the project to make it better. If not myself, you know, I bring you know, my own knowledge of references and like and technology. I, I try to stay very well read and kept up to all the latest technologies and cameras and things that are available that might be very beneficial for something specific that we're doing. And I think it's also, as you said, the, the process is very collaborative and you're looking for someone that I guess has taste or able to when someone's unsure of the creative decision that needs to be made, that they need a collaborator. They need someone to be like, is this good? Is it not good? How could it be better? So it's someone to be able to bounce off those ideas with. 
you you're talking about the network. That's really important, knowing people, knowing what's new, knowing what's fresh. It's kind of like it's kind of a Hawaii skill too, right? Like the more people you know, the more you can get done here. What are some other Hawaii qualities that you kind of bring to the industry? Is there anything you borrow from your upbringing that you kind of fuse into your work? Sure. I mean, I think growing up in Hawaii is such a unique experience that, you know, it's really hard to convey to someone that hasn't grown up here. I think you're right. Like, I think growing up in Hawaii has affected my taste and the things that I like and sort of the things that are interesting to me. But even sort of the smallest details, I mean, a lot of people say that I'm very chill, I'm very relaxed, very peaceful and easy to work with. I don't know what makes that uniquely Hawaiian, but, you know, that is something that I only can assume comes with growing up on an island and not growing up in like New York City or something. And I know that you grew up on Maui, graduated from Maui High, and I've heard you say in a past interview that that is where you kind of got your start in media. Can you talk about how growing up on Maui and the opportunities that you received while growing up there kind of prepared you for where you are now? Yeah, definitely. Maui High at the time, or even still to this day, has a a very, very strong technology program, whereas through grants or through other sort of things that they've been able to arrange for their various programs there, that is kind of what exposed me to media as like a career. I didn't know I wanted to do film from the get-go. Like it wasn't something that I, at the age of seven, I picked up a camera and was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. It was kind of just through school and just having access to cameras and software and computers and having what was then, you know, the the latest and greatest things that I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. Like I enjoyed doing this. And when I started to realize that there's actual occupations that people do these things for a living and it doesn't have to just be a hobby was when I started to take it more seriously. And it was through a short film that I made in high school I submitted to New York University's film program that then kind of set me on this path of filmmaking because essentially I didn't really expect to get in and it wasn't my dream of dreams to go to film school. It was just more this like, oh, I got accepted and there's this film that I just made with a bunch of my friends that they somehow think is good. So there must be something there. So I kind of went to NYU on a whim trying to figure out what they saw in this film that I made and why I got accepted, I guess. And when you think about the next generation of artists or the next generation of producers or or people in media, how do you identify or what do you think is attractive about new talent that you like to work with? What do you think you look for? What do you think the industry is looking for? Well, I think uh, the next wave of talent is going to be so different than quote unquote, my generation, it makes me feel very old saying that I'm a millennial. But if you look at a a Gen Z audience, you know, they grew up with the internet since they were born. They had access to a phone much younger. I didn't have a cell phone until I was 18. Very late in high school was really the start of the internet for me. So I just think that this next, I guess, generation Z would would have such a different perspective. And it's it's interesting to see that, you know, what all these factors have done to their taste and, you know, how they, they make things, which is really cool. When you look at the movement in film and television that they're making toward telling broader stories, more inclusive stories, what are your thoughts on the increase in opportunities to tell Hawaii stories? What, do you, what are you seeing from your perspective? I think it's definitely getting easier and easier. I think it still requires a lot of effort from producers and studios and people with distribution and with money. It's nice to see so many more unique stories being told and being exposed to a greater audience. And I think that is progress. That is where a society needs to go and develop to, you know, be not only just more inclusive, but just more whole as a society. Do you feel like this is a time that local filmmakers, local artists can jump in and find success? Yeah, I think the time is always now. You know, generally speaking, progress is slow, but it's people trying that, you know, makes these things happen sooner. And 
Yeah, if you look at the latest round of Oscar nominations, it's pretty incredible. It's, yeah. you know, a couple of glass ceilings being broken very quickly. Not quickly, but all at the same time. So the more people that try to keep breaking in and keep pushing this rock up this hill, the better. What's your favorite story of working with an artist or on a project from your time in the industry? I know you've worked with a lot of huge names, you know, A-list names, names like Beyonce, Kendrick Lamar, Arcade Fire. I'm a huge Beastie Boys fan, and I know you worked on their documentary with Spike Jones. What's your favorite story working with an artist or on a project? Well, I think, uh, you know, it's rare for me to find someone that is not what they they seem. Everyone is remarkably normal as much as you want to sort of exotify them and uh, think that they're more than a human. But I guess I would sort of really, I, I really cherish some of these relationships of artists that I get to work with more than, more than once. You know, Kendrick's been very lovely to work with over the past couple of years. But um, I also, you know, I have this really wonderful relationship with the musician Sia, where I produce a couple of her music videos. I went on to work on her film. And it's artists that really try and put in the work and really care about the things that they're making and also care about the people that they work with and treat them very well. I always cherish that when it, whenever it feels like you can have a real moment with someone that's deemed a celebrity, it always feels nice to be reminded that they are normal. So Beyonce, pretty cool. She was cool. Yeah, lovely. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> right now, well, thanks so much for your time, Jason. Really appreciate it. Congratulations on your nomination. We'll keep our fingers crossed and we'll be cheering for you come Grammy's time on Sunday, February 5th. Cool. Thank you so much for having me. That was Grammy-winning producer and Maui native Jason Baum talking with The Conversation's Russell Subiono. I said I do this for my culture To let y'all know what it look like In a bulletproof rover In my mama's sofa Was a doodle popper Head trigger, walk up closer Ain't no photoshopping Free as bipolar Grab you by your pockets No option if you froze up I always play the offense Going to work and selling work Late for work Working late, praying for work But he don't pay for work That's the culture Point the finger, promote you. Well, that's it for us today. Tomorrow, we'll hear more from the head of the FBI office out here about recruitment during what some consider to be one of the most challenging times for hiring new workers. Do you have any story ideas to share with us? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard today? You can find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the Conversation. Conversation.